Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 419th episode of Constructed Grism. I am your host, Mason, joined by my co-host, Abe Stein. And Abe, our question this week is, what is your favorite movie that you saw for the first time in this calendar year? My favorite movie that I saw in the last year was Another Round, which I believe won like 2020 foreign indie film of the year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Really, really good movie that had me asking a lot of questions about like what is good and bad and, you know, moderation in life period. It really, really good film. If if you have any interest in it or hear anyone say anything about it, you should go watch it. It's really, really good. It's actually on my list of things to watch. I was really kind of hoping that it would get like a dub or whatever because like reading a lot in films is hard for the old dyslexic Mason, but uh, it's one I'm, I'm going to watch. I know that one day I'm going to be like, it's fine. We're going to power through it even if we're the pause. So that's an exciting one. Unfortunately, Spencer is not here today. He is sick out. Uh, but we will be having Jarvis Yu come on here and just a little bit in the show to talk all about legacy. I guess I will spend this one second to say that my favorite movie I saw this year, uh, I actually saw today. I think I'm going to go with it. I had some free time and I was able to watch Bell, which was a uh, anime film. It's on HBO Max now and it was very, very good. It was visually stunning and the music was really, really good. And I highly recommend it. I think it's probably better, you know, less about it. But it is kind of a uh, Beauty and the Beast modern uh take on things but not exactly that but just sort of like definitely pays a lot of homages to that in a lot of ways and so uh it's really really good i highly suggest it, especially if you like animated films especially visually stunning ones there are a lot of scenes that were like jaw-dropping so highly suggest that but hey we need to get to always improving because that's the main point of the show it's not anime even though an anime podcast would be great this is what's important it's improving and how did you improve this last week yeah so this week I actually had a really, really good conversation with uh, one of our patrons in which I was asked a question about, uh, you know, where is it that I find confidence? And it wasn't until being asked this question, uh, in regards to like magic, where do I find confidence in magic, that I realized that over the last, I, I said it many episodes ago that a goal of mine had been working on was deck building. And over, you know, however many months of, you know, continually working on that passively, I have found what I like to call routine confidence within my abilities as uh, like, a, like in tuning my deck and restructuring aspects of my deck and making game plans happen with my decks that, I didn't have before. And that was like a really, really awesome eye-opening moment to see that like, and especially ultimately the answer of where does my confidence come from when it comes to playing magic is a lot of, you know, trusting my processes and knowing that I've worked on improving and I've put in time. Um, But to see another place where I now have confidence that I've been using a lot over the last few weeks and playing RCQs and adapting the decks I'm playing, kind of adjusting week to week with what I think the narrative is, what I think people will be playing, what I think a room's going to be like, and being able to just do that very seamlessly in a way I hadn't been able to do before was seeing another area where I had put in that time and that effort and was seeing that reward and hadn't even realized that it was already something that, you know, it felt second nature and I was able to be confident in the decisions I was making, which is where I get where I get the idea of routine confidence is like, it's something where, 
you're doing something, it's in your routine, it's it feels second nature, and therefore you're able to be confident about what you're doing being correct because you trust your own process. Um, and so to have that, you know, swapping around eight to ten cards of my deck list from something that I'm pulling online because I need it to line up with what I think is going to happen in a tournament and not feeling lost in what the decisions I'm making are, that was just something that I had kind of missed in my own growth over the last, you know, six maybe six months maybe a year of, of working on this passively so yeah that's great uh it's so important to kind of be able to like not only know why you're confident because like knowing why kind of lets you know what your strengths are and stuff like that but to like be looking at it realistically right it's not like i'm confident because i always be hammering on two you know it's like there's like reasons behind it right and it's like stuff that you like you're seeing yourself grow and act on and happen which is always so great and so important and i know it's something that a lot of people really struggle with in magic and probably something we will do an episode on someday but not today uh it's confidence my always improving moment um really comes down to something that we've talked about a lot recently on the show uh maybe a little bit off the show too but sort of like finding good attacks and like just in general people lacking good attacking and blocking uh kind of strengths and this kind of came up in part because i played an event recently where a bunch of my opponents just kept like missing good attacks or lethal attacks that they swung out and i had a coaching session with actually one of the uh, listeners of the show and he was having this real problem where you know kind of leading up to it he was messaging me and he was like hey like I feel like I'm doing everything right. I feel like I'm doing kind of stuff we talked about. I'm not playing perfectly, but I feel like I'm doing the right rhythm things. And I just keep two three leagues. Like I can't get a three two to save my life. And we came time for this session. And I started talking a little bit. I was like, honestly, man, we kind of probably get get in the streets actually. Break my normal rule. Play a league match and like you know see what's happening here. And as we were playing, we got to this point where I was having him kind of narrate all his plays out loud so we could talk about before we did it. And he was like, yeah, I kind of just want to hold back here. That way our opponent uh, can't attack us because we're going to start, you know, we lose that race. And I was like, well, what if we attack right now? You know, like, what if you just send in the Bone Crusher Giant? Like, what does that look like? And we got to have this whole sort of thing of like, hey, like, by attacking with some of our things or in some situations all of your things, right, you can actually put them on the back foot and be in the same spots as if they your creatures are blocking, right? And your opponent doesn't get to attack because they can't attack back for lethal, and you would, right? So, like, you know, if your opponent's at 14, you attack for 7, and they can't trade with the creature, well, they're going to be at 7 on the next turn, so unless they, like, get something that holds the fort down, they're not going to attack you back, right? And that's, like, a way to work towards lethal, because what if you, you know, what if they attack and then they play a blocker, you know? And they're like, aha, this will eat it. And then you draw a kill spell, and stuff like that. And so we got to work on that, and it was so funny. Uh, I think it's something that I thought to be pretty true of the red-black deck before, and I was talking to um, Derek about uh, that is, like, a big thing about the red-black deck in Pioneer is that you have to be good at attacking and blocking and kind of like that sort of thing. If you're not good at that, a lot of percentage points get left on the table. And so it kept coming up. In the, we got we played about three games of... We played about three or four matches in a league. Uh, and, like, you know, during that, um, we, like, played them and we just kept having to come up and we really got in by the third game where it's like, oh, we can make these attacks. And also, like, being offensive is sometimes the best defensive move you can make because it f- limits what your opponent can do and we have to do things like you know we double dreadboard two pretty bad creatures to just attack 
And he was like, well, I need to save this for, you know, this other creature, this big thing of theirs. And it's like, well, if we do this now, even if they draw that, they're just dead if you attack in. And he was like, oh, that's right. And just sort of taking the time to figure out, like, okay, how can we pressure them and make life total a resource that they do care about? Because so often, you know, life total is taught as the resource that's the least valuable until the very last second. And that, while that is true, there are ways to make that not true. And then once it becomes a valuable resource, it is a very valuable resource. So that was my always improvement moment was sort of working on that, getting to work on that with them, and then sort of applying that to my other games as well and seeing, like, you know, like, I'm playing some four colors. Like, okay, can I get in a sneaky attack with an Omnath right now? Like, can I start making it so that I can turn the corner a little bit sooner? Uh, and I think that's something that's important in Money Pile, too. So that's my most improving moment. Yeah, I think that's that's really great. Especially thinking about Rakdos mid-range as a deck that it matters a lot about the attacks and blocks you're making. Like, if you... And, and I think that this kind of, like, is a separation on a bigger level between a mid-range deck and a control deck is... In control deck, you're kind of trying to maximize lining up your answers with your opponent's threats. But in a mid because you have just some sort of inevitability, you have some way to go way over the top of what they're doing. In a mid-range deck like Rakdos, you have powerful cards that do a lot. But if you're not offering resource exchanges on your time frame, you're kind of gonna you're gonna lose out on the fact that you're trying to play smaller, more efficient threats. You know, like if if I use my Bone Crusher Giant to kill a creature, and then I'm not willing to offer the trade with the Bone Crusher Giant uh, offensively, or I'm going to be put on the back foot and blocking with it, and I'm not willing to make that block, well, then I'm not getting my two-for-one out of my bo- Bone Crusher Giant. You know, I'm not I'm not moving the game in the pace that I, I want to if that's not what I'm doing. And also, subsequently, all of my other creatures like Graveyard Trespasser or Blood Type Harvester just get worse at doing their job of bringing the life total into play by attacking or blocking subsequently. So it is it is kind of a house of cards situation of you really have to be thinking about combat. Um, and that's kind of a thing with Pioneer on the whole, I think, right now, is thinking about combat and the board state. There's not a lot of ways to avoid that, that matrix of the game. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think what you said there is so true about, especially like mid-range versus control. And if you're thinking about like the red-black deck and maybe that's not so true to you, I think one key example to look to that is the the choice to play cut ribbons over a card like Mizium Mortars, right? Like disregard playing Dreadboard number four. Just think about like, okay, if you wanted a four-mana deal, a two-mana deal four damage card, there are a lot better ones to play than cut ribbons if you're trying to play these long drawn-out games, right? But there are a few better at trying to, you know, put your opponent on the back foot and then close them out later. And that is kind of what a card like Cut Ribbon does. So that's it for the Always Improving segment. We do have our Patreon shout-out moment in the show. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. One of the benefits of that is you get to ask questions on the show. Typically happens at the end. You also may have guests today like Jarvis. You get to ask them questions, so you'll have your questions read on the show. But we also give you a shout-out when you join. So shout-out to Evan for joining the Patreon. Great to have you here. And we do want to talk about another benefit of being a patron. If you're a $10 patron, the diamond tier, you get access to everything that's on there, but you also get entry into the quarterly tournament, which happens this Saturday at the time of the recording. So that's going to be August 13th, uh, and it starts at, I believe, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and it's going to be a Pioneer Tournament, $500 brought to you by Game Goodly High minimum when it comes to prize payout. So, hey, if there's only eight of you that show up, Cool, we're going to scale some prizes for the eight of you that showed up and still have that $500 minimum. 
uh, prize pool for you in Game Grid League High Store Credit. So you're going to have a pretty juicy event, just to be honest. And if you're a $10 patron of the show, you get into that for free. But if you want to play the event, you can also go to the MTG Melee link, which will be in the show notes and it's on the website and on our Twitters. And you can go and sign up there and then pay $10. So, hey, if you'd rather give Brad Nelson some money, that's cool. Brad's, you know, in the family, we guess. You can give him 10 Or you can get to Patreon, get some other stuff. You know, you get access to, like, these questions. You get to talk to the people in the community. You get to ask stuff about the show. You get to know what the shows are. Sometimes we do these, like, special uh, live streams of the, pat- of the episodes early. So you get to see kind of the magic happening. Uh, so if that's something that interests you, you should definitely check that out. And especially the tournament. I know Spencer's really excited. And there will be top eight coverage of that on the youtube channel it's going to get recorded edited and then put up there so it's a claim to fame moment as well and we get that sweet trophy spencer made but it's time for our main topic but now it's time for our special guest to talk about the coolest and oldest format that people can actually play legacy and our special guest is jarvis Yu. you might know him from his time on the Pro Tour, you might know him from his Twitch streams where he plays Legacy, you know, every Monday where normally he'd be doing it, but he came to come join us today. But we're so happy to have you on today, Jarvis, and talk about everything. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, you know, I did take a day off the stream here because uh, I didn't want to be tired to answer all y'all's uh, wonderful questions, you know? Mm-hmm. And Legacy is a format you've played and participate a lot in, right? In case a listener maybe doesn't know too much about Legacy or too much about you. I actually have played the format off and on since 2005, which might be longer than some of the Zoomers who now currently play Legacy and are actually pretty good at it, which is kind of funny to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, the Zoomers really, it's crazy. For some of them, I think it actually 2005 is the year they were born. So, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, you know, <laughs> you've been doing it the whole time they've been going. So it's a, it's a crazy thing to think about. But when talking about Legacy, it's probably kind of best to say, where is the format at? You know, for a lot of people, they haven't really played much Legacy uh, since, you know, COVID and everything started. And Paper Legacy is just now starting to come back. And, you know, when we last left everything, Oka was still in the format and kind of dominating. <laughs> and it was kind of like the thing, you know, I think one of the last events is actually you topping a, a GP with uh, Team or Delver, which had Oko's, I believe. Or was that like right before Oko? I, it's all yeah. such a blur in my mind. Um, it was right before uh, MC Oko, so Oko hadn't been printed yet. Okay. I did register Oko in that MC, mm-hmm. like 69% of the room did. I played one match versus someone who was playing Rakdos Knights, if you remember that deck. I did. Rotting Register and Ember Cleave. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I got very unlucky to lose, but I did lose to uh, Register wearing Ember Cleave. So, wow. sometimes that happens. Yeah, maybe that needs to get explored in Legacy. Maybe that's the, the evolution of Blood Moon Stomp. Yeah, I think there's not enough Ember Cleaves in Legacy. That's <laughs> most powerful cards in Magic. That's definitely one of them. <laughs> Artifacts are broken. So what what does Legacy kind of look like right now? So if I'm like you know wanting to hop back into things, what are kind of some of the top decks mm-hmm. going on in Legacy, and what can I expect to sort of play against? If you've played any amount of Modern whatsoever, some of the cards that dominate Modern also dominate Legacy. And the most obvious ones are Expressive Iteration and Dragonry's Channeler. Uh, Rackman is no longer legal, so if someone plays it against you, just uh, call a judge and head on your way. Obviously, like it's kind of weird that DRC and Iteration are still legal, but Ragman isn't. But there's a little bit more going on there. Like The whole Ragman days dynamic was extremely, I would say, off-putting to play against if you were in the draw. Some, in some ways, it felt like you were going third and you, even, and you didn't even register a Celestial Colonnade. Like, uh, 
some Sukunex or Apesteins might. Okay. So so Delver is still kind of the thing, mm-hmm. but the pieces around Delver are really kind of the new hotness. And I've, I've heard on, on the streets the word dichotomy a lot. You know, there's like a Delverless okay. Delver deck. What is that for listeners? Because I'm going to be honest, I don't really know. At this point, I'm too afraid to ask. So I'm curious, what is dichotomy Delver deck? What, what, what does that mean if someone's trying to get into the format? So the actual word dichotomy means... You know, there are, like, two parts to something, right? And this person was using it to refer to the fact that stock, like, is a Delver, has two very disjointed plans. A, you can play, like, a turn 15-plus game, or you can play, like, a five-turn game where, they like, you wasteland your opponent twice and you kill them with a bunch of landing bolts. In my mind, that's not actually a weakness of the deck. That's actually a strength of the deck instead. But this person wanted to build a more focused deck. So by doing so, he removed some of the early game elements to just be like sort of a mid-rangey, bigger version of the deck. Because there's a truism in Magic that there's two ways to win a, like a semi-mirror or a pseudo-mirror. Either you go way faster than your opponent or you go slightly bigger than your opponent. And they chose to go slightly bigger playing cards like Ledger Shredder, which, you know, it's a great card in other formats. I'm not sure it's actually that great in this format. Ironically, I think it's actually better in Vintage than it is in Legacy because of the presence of Moxon, which is a is a very different dynamic. But I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Shredder in Legacy. I mean, obviously it's a powerful card still. You can play it if you want. This person has also chosen to pair both DRC and Mistress Bottle Bobble with the card Predict, which is not a card you see particularly often. And I really just think it's fifth and sixth copies of Expressive Iteration because Iteration is, you know, that good. So what I'm hearing a lot about is, like, Legacy is really just, like, Mm. iteration the format you know like that is kind of the card that's like the biggest like there's obviously a lot of other stuff going on i don't want to oversimplify it but when it comes to blue deck that's really been the biggest shot in the arm and the kind of the biggest dynamic uh shift in the format since things mm-hmm. you know in the last couple of years yeah i would actually say if you're playing like a blue mid-range deck in legacy and you're not playing iteration you better have a very good reason for doing so otherwise i think you're probably just playing a worse version of another deck if i had to guess um, like, I, maybe you don't have to play all four, but I would probably suggest playing three. It will just increase the power of your deck, help you in the low resource games that, you know, sometimes you mulligan and you keep a two-lander with iteration, and it kind of feels like you didn't mulligan whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. So I, I guess my kind of question is, looking away from the blue decks, uh, mm-hmm. what else is kind of going on in the format? Because like, whenever we see results and you look at results recently, the, like green-white depths deck has been doing really well. Mm-hmm. And that deck is, uh, I think, much different than a lot of listeners would probably imagine it at first. Like, it plays mm-hmm. five to six, like, one-mana white removal spells in the form of endings and swords and all that sort of thing. So is that, like, a real player in the metagame? Or is that, you know, some players kind of playing it and just kind of, you know, having that sort of player skill difference and the, like edge and skill that Legacy can sometimes give you being played out over and over again. As we see, like, Rodney Burdell mm-hmm. uh, win both an SCG 10K and the NRG uh, 5K mm-hmm. this last weekend. Your question has a lot of different layers to it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to attempt to answer it one by one. I think um, the Naya Depth deck, it's, it's really touching red for Pyroblast, and also, I think sometimes the third color can be important for a Prismatic ending. So it actually, I would classify it as Naya as opposed to White-Green. It also plays a new card from uh, Baldur Gate's Commander, I believe. Minx and Boo Timeless Heroes, I believe is the name of the card. I'm reading I actually, that card right now. So. Well, 
So funny thing is, Abe, uh, last Saturday I actually bought two from Level Up because there were not many copies of that card to be found. I thought it might be an important card in Legacy because, importantly, if you play like a like a teamer mid-range deck, having your top-end threats not be power blastable is kind of a big deal, and that's one of the better ones to play, I think. So I think uh, that card has legs in the format. I, I think people should go look it up if they want to read what the card does, but... Funny things you can do with the card is if uh, you have it in play and then you immediately make a Lage, you can just immediately minus and fling the Lage at your opponent. So th there's actually a lot of things going on with that uh, Naya Depths deck, I think, generally speaking. I think it's actually extremely difficult to play well from the depth side, but one thing it does have going for it, it's actually extremely hard for like stock Isidelver to interact with most of its components especially if you wait for Elvish Reclaimer to be a 3-4. Um, just on paper, just playing a bunch of X-4s versus the deck full of Lightning Bolts is kind of a recipe for disaster for the Izzet deck. Uh, what has to happen then is the Izzet deck has to just close the game and just send all of the Bolts upstairs and hope it's good enough. That's not really a good or reliable plan in most of the games. And I think that's why you actually see... Uh, some people saying jokingly, yeah, Rodney bought all these Volcanic Islands so you can lend all of them out and then farm all those people on his way to winning. Um, obviously, that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I do think it is one of the most well-rounded decks. What that Naya deck doesn't want to play against is really fast combo, but in general, it sort of pushes those sort of decks out. So it's sort of you're creating an ideal format if you get back the get past the first three rounds or so in a tournament, see you get to three and no, you can expect a lot of is it or decks that might be soft to the card dark depths. Also, traditionally speaking, one of the bad matchups for depths is actually sort of the Jeskai control decks, whether they have days in doing or not. Uh, I think Source of Postures is a big reason for that because when you can answer neither row of query for one mana, that's kind of a big deal, you know? And Furthermore, I will say that I think there are ways that Delver can play better versus uh, Depths. It's just extremely difficult to do so. He hasn't played both sides of the matchup. And this is why in playtesting, no matter what the format, I encourage people to just switch decks. Just switch both sides. Play both sides because when you try to win as the one of the sides versus the deck you want to play, um, you can actually get a lot of insight and look for the corner cases or the tips and tricks that you might not see if you only play once at the matchup. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a really good tip to give people. So, you know, we've kind of talked about this deck and the Delver deck, and it's got me kind of curious about, like, what's going on with mm. some of the tried-and-true decks? Are we still seeing decks like Death and mm. Taxes and Reanimator? Are those still things? Mm. I know that, like, we saw the Death and Taxes deck get Yorion as an inclusion, and then Urza Saga mm -hmm. the thing that's moved around in those decks. And what is kind of the format looking like outside of these sort of things that we keep seeing when tournaments? Like, I'm seeing the Mono Red Prison deck all the time when mm -hmm. I look online. Are those things that you're really thinking about and are active parts of the Legacy metagame, or are those things that just kind of happen, in your opinion? Great question. I think, uh, personally for me, to tackle the decks one by one, I, I actually think 8-cast and Mono Red Prison fall into that category as well. Uh, Acast is not really a blue deck by traditional standards, even though obviously it does play the color blue. Uh, I'll talk it one by one. I really think Reanimator got heavily improved when Canister, noted hater of Legacy, decided to work on the deck. He's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, he loves magic, but he he does not really care for Legacy, I think, because there's a lot of like wheel spinning in the format with Brainstorms and Ponders not being restricted. 
Uh, he actually prefers vintage, I believe, to legacy for that reason. But what the key innovation in Reanimator is to just play the full eight pack of giant black creatures for Grizzle Brand for Archon of Cruelty. And I, I've just been really impressed with that setup. I think the old setups that people had with like all of the cute one of cards, like the why bother? Just weaponize your deck. Just do the same thing every game. And you know, Archon Cruelty is pretty close to Cruel Ultimatum on, uh, you know, on an eight mana card. You know, and there are some games where Archon's better. Can't be Caracast. You know, it can get the last card out of their hand. What if it? What if it's something like weird, like Guild Drake? And also Archon's better card versus cards like Narset, Parter of Veils. So there's there's actually a lot of things to like about Archon. And that's why I think you should play the full full eight. I see lists that occasionally don't do that. I think it's a mistake. Because you know, there are just the games where you have like Faithless Looting as your outlet. So you actually need to like have one of those within, you know, your first seven plus two draw steps. Not necessarily the easy th easiest thing to do. So I actually think Reanimator is a good deck. And also, you know, a good deck that has done extremely well in the hands of Cancer. Cancer punched one of the Mox tickets, beating Javier in the finals. Uh, that That is a world-class uh, match. You know, Javier playing Isidelver versus Cancer playing Reanimator. That, that is a match you would see in, like, the end rounds of a Pro Tour or whatever high-level event you want. So I wish I'd been there to watch that one. I think... It's on his uh, YouTube did, channel. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that that's a good one to watch. Apparently, there was actually like a slight punt on both sides in one of the games. But Magic is really hard. Even those those players are incredible. You know, mistakes can happen to everyone. But yeah, I, I do think Reanimator is very good. I also think it's a sort of deck that if you like that sort of playstyle, like you like Reanimator in Modern, you can pick it up. It's kind of relatively simple. I think mostly what's going on with Reanimator is knowing what hands you're allowed to keep and how to play around hate are the most difficult parts as well as how do you not sideboard so much to mess your deck up? I think those are the key uh, precepts, which, you know, those are still challenging parts of magic. I think there's like a perception of magic that the only thing in magic that matters is in gameplay, but there's a lot more to it than that. Canister is obviously going to play Reanimator close to 99%, but he's getting those like last 9% in doing all those other things right. Because he's played a lot of engine decks in his life. He knows how not to mess up a combo deck. So that's my reanimator rant. I think the deck is actually really good. And I hope not enough people play it. Because it's also extremely repetitive to play against. Like, I I recently played against reanimator like five times in a row on my stream. And it gets pretty old very quickly. Although it's obviously like an important matchup to know how to play. But yeah, that's reanimator. Mono Red Prison. I, I'm going to leave some room uh, in between for you, you all to talk. I think this card actually was heavily improved by both Streets of New Capenna and uh, Neon Kamigawa Dynasty. Mostly because cards that... What's the best way to put it? Fable of the Mirror Breaker is a lot better we can play it on turn two because of the presence of all the Soul Lands, Chromox, Lotus Petal. And also what the red deck was lacking before was a kind of a way to get rid of, like, dump its extra cards of, like, Trinosphere or Blood Moon, which are not so good. So a little bit of card selection. Obviously, the third chapter... If you ever start copying Furies, your opponent's probably dead. A lot to like there. License Source is just a, a good way to like put the screws to a Merc Titan game one. It's like kind of okay everywhere and also plays perfectly with the Soul Lamb. So I think Red Prison is also pretty good. So if you have any quick questions about those two decks before I move on to 8-cast, hit me up. 
Yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, kind of update what you might know. If you're someone who played Legacy two or three years ago and remembers the Red Prison deck as something that's just like, oh, I'm going to Chalice the Void you and then play some Rabble Masters, this deck has actually gotten some huge upgrades over the mm -hmm. last few years. Uh, things like Bone Crusher Giant have been added to the mix. Right. Uh, you know, cards like Fury, the Fable of Mirror Breakers that Jarvis was talking about, Unlicensed Hearse. The amount that the threat quality has improved, and especially with Fable kind of making the deck a little less inconsistent, a little like loses to itself a lot less mm -hmm. in the games where maybe it would sometimes just fold to like getting wastelanded after playing uh, like a Chalice the Void and then getting played through. There's a lot of uh, a lot of things that just rising that qu card quality has changed by the deck, and so I think mm -hmm. it's something that maybe you were a little inclined to try out. So it is one of the lower barrier to entry decks in the format. Um, if you're inclined to try it out, or you know you maybe haven't played against it in a while and you think of it as something you know maybe a little worse than it actually is now, but definitely take some time to to revisit that. I'm really interested in the uh, eight cast deck, so I'm going to have some questions for that one. So okay. let's hop into that deck. I think this is also a deck that sort of rose to prominence because of Neon Kamigawa. Not the set itself, but Neon Kamigawa Commander. And specifically, there's a card, when it was spoiled, like, people just didn't believe this was a real magic card. Uh, it's called Kappa Cannoneer, and it has sweet art. It's basically like a giant turtle, and there's someone riding the turtle. Um, but what it is, it's a five, five and a blue, four, four. It has Improvise and Ward four. And when an artifact comes into play under the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on it, and it cannot be blocked until end of turn. Weirdly enough, it counts itself coming into play. Uh, I don't know if a designer missed that on like design. It's just kind of weird because like it's it's just weird that every time you play it, it just triggers itself. I, I still haven't gotten over that. But the reason it's called eight cast is because of thought monitor and thought class. Thought Monitor obviously being a relatively new printing from Modern Horizons 2. But really, the difference in this format compared to Modern, which some people might be familiar with the deck, is A, Moxobo is legal, and more importantly, B, Seed of the Sonata is legal, which is, you know, like one of the original Ancient Tombs. But speaking of Ancient Tomb, this deck also plays Ancient Tomb. And, you know, everyone's favorite broken saga, Urza Saga. So really, a lot of printings from the last few years have sort of made this deck come to fruition. It also plays Emery, Lurker of the Lock from Throne of the Eldraine, probably like the 40th best card from Throne of Eldraine, which means it's like the best card in a lot of other sets. Um, Sidemaster of Thopterus, which is kind of a standout card in only artifact decks, uh, makes an appearance here. And, um, you know, deck's kind of great. The nightmare for this deck is actually Elves, and that's because this deck doesn't play a lot of removal, and also, Chalice of, the, Chalice of the Void from 1 can be mostly ignored by Elves nowadays, which is kind of a key interaction. But I would say this deck generally is fine versus most decks. One of the people I talk to sometimes about Magic, Alan Wu, one of the great Magic players, he's been playing a lot of 8-cast. He actually thinks the deck is pretty good, but you're actually slightly unfavored versus skilled Delver Pilots. Like, skilled is a Delver Pilots. I think there was like there's a lot of exaggeration in the community, but when someone has like a more subtle take on it, I tend to respect that opinion more instead of like, because opinions are not really the way magic works. I think really more importantly is knowing how the games are won or lost rather, rather than like a win percentage. And basically what he said was, 
in the games where you don't get meltdowned, Delver loses. Like it's it's not even close. In the games where you get meltdowned, you lose. And game one is kind of even, but their deck is a little bit more consistent and Wasteland's kind of a problem. And one of the tricks to that matchup from the Delver side is I try not to Wasteland anything that's not Urza Saga because it tends to not work out very well because the deck has a lot of mana in it. And the problem with specifically Urza Saga is you can basically counterspell most of their other spells, but you cannot counterspell Urza Saga. And so like Wastelanding, like a random boost source, I have almost no interest unless if it's clear that they have literally no other land. Awesome. That answers some of my questions I was going to ask you. But my next question is, <laughs> you kind of mentioned like what Alan thought of the deck. What do you kind of think of the deck? Because this is the deck to me that I feel like outside Naya Depths has really kind of broken on the scene recently. And I have been sort of lower on. And I, I play much less Legacy than, you know, a lot of people. Uh, I basically only play it for events when it comes up. But I had to play some Legacy uh, early on in 8-Cast's life. And my decision was I could have played the deck, but I decided not to. And I felt like the deck was a little too all-in, kind of like the Mono Red Prison decks. Um, and But tried to play like a fair game plan too, but wasn't very good at the two. And... That was obviously in the early iterations of the deck, right? So things have changed. But is that something that you feel is true about the deck now? Uh, or is that something you kind of feel is untrue? If maybe someone's listening, they're kind of like, ooh, I kind of like the idea of playing, you know, a bunch of draw spells, some chalices, some emeries, you know, our saga them out. I think in the early days, the deck was actually a lot better when people didn't start playing, like, Double Meltdown, or sometimes you see white decks play Serenity. Reanimator actually plays Serenity in its sideboard as well, which those are kind of all huge problems for that. Serenity is even worse for you because you can't even sneak a Kappa Cannoneer past that one because it will just get killed. Whereas, like, it's actually pretty hard to melt down a Kappa Cannoneer in, a, in like, a reasonable time frame. I think the deck is still somewhat reasonable, but uh, to your point is, what kind of deck is it? I actually view it as a mid-range deck that just happens to have, like, a few, like, weird prison elements. It's more mid-rangey than anything else because... The kind of games that Thoughtcast promotes are not, like, fast games. Like, you actually want time to deploy all of your card draw spells and all of the cards you get off of it. And you can also just build, like, big boards. Most of the games I win with 8-cast involve Shadow Spear on a, like, 15-15 construct or whatever. Like, it's it's kind of absurd how big those things get. So it it is similar to Red Prison on surface, but in actuality, the games play out a lot differently. And... One of the one of the key things to know is if you're playing a Chalice Mirror versus Eight Cast, just put your Chalice on zero. The deck like becomes really dysfunctional. That's good to know. Well, I I kind of want to talk a little bit because we've been mentioning this a little bit throughout all this, and it's one of the things we want to mention anyway. So I kind of want to bring it up here is how do you kind of evaluate legacy results with everything going on between you know challenges mm-hmm. and leagues and you know premier like showcases and then obviously uh, like 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 yeah no leagues we don't have to actually go over but you know like but like showcases and things like that like the mox thing like with canister and then also you know we have like scg has their random legacy stuff nrg is still supporting legacy you know as of right now so how do you kind of parse and evaluate what's going on especially with like card availability being such a huge problem in the format so you've actually asked a question that pops up in other areas of statistics which is how do you deal with varied body of results. Uh, This is actually a question that happens all the time in medical science as well, because you don't know how the like controls were done on certain studies. Even if you read the paper, they can claim something, but you don't know that to be the truth. What I would say is this is 
basically, if I had a great answer to this question, I would have a giant statistical consulting business, I think is the best answer for it. So I, I'm going to go through my process for handling it, which is not going to be the same as everyone else's who does well. I actually do think five O's in leagues mean something. You just have to be careful of what meaning you take from them and what you're trying to learn from them. What I'm going to say is if the same person keeps five owing with a deck and I don't understand why I'm going to look into it and try to understand why it actually, in some ways, if I've watched an SCG open and I've watched someone who's not so good at playing, keep winning with a deck in legacy, I will actually put a higher premium on that. Cause I think there's actually a lot to be gained from a deck that wins despite the pilot instead of because of the pilot. I call this the Reed Duke effect because often Reed can make a deck look way better than it actually is. And I can sort of just understand that by looking at the cards he's playing. I'm going to shout out Modern Jund currently as being the prime example of that, where uh, he occasionally gets three twos. He almost rarely fives out five O's. And that means the average person is going to go like two, three on average, if, if not worse. So there, there's a lot of ways to parse that. In the same vein, like, you know, signature players winning with their own deck, I place a less of a priority on. Where it starts to get interesting is a player I've never heard of, they win like a big event IRL, uh, and I haven't seen their deck before. I'll, I'll actually place a lot of weight on that because in order to win a tournament, you there are two ways to win a tournament. You can either be so much better than your opponents, or you can get somewhat lucky or you can have a huge deck edge. But I usually think the being somewhat lucky part has a lot to do with deck edge in tournaments. So that's what I'm looking for from, say, an IRL result. Let's just take a simple example. In the case of Rodney in the top eight, it's pretty clear to me why he won the tournament. There's not a lot of rocket science to be done there. He played against Is It multiple times. He probably knew the matchup better than they did. And he won all of all of his games. Like it's it's not very difficult to figure out. Um, that's what I mean by deck edge. And obviously, he probably got somewhat lucky because in order for you to not even drop one game to is it like there, there's some amount of variance there, of course. In general, I don't like have like an aggregator like Frank Carson style where I like input all of the results because I think that's sort of meaningless and useless. I will basically just you know take a quick look at the 5-0 deck dump, see if there's anything interesting every week. I'll look at the IRL results. If something is really out of the ordinary, then I'll probably try the deck. But most of the decks I've seen before, and I understand their strengths and the weaknesses, because I make it a point to try every single deck once in a while. Again, for a lot of the reasons I listed before, if you try every deck once in a while yourself, you'll know how to play against it better. So I think for a lot of the, my opponents in Legacy, I've probably played the matchup from both sides more than they have in general. And I think that's just a that's just an enormous advantage. So that's my process. Uh, it's not really what's the best way of putting it. It's not really assigning numbers to things and doing it. But like I said, I think if you had like a formulaic a great answer to that, you'd be one of the best consultants in the world. And I'm not that, and I don't think anyone is. Most if there's some like hidden hedge fund uh, consultant that I don't know of who's keeping it under locks because they want to like you know, make a run on the stock market or whatever, you know? Sure. Yeah, totally. Well, 
Thank you for answering that question. Uh, we actually have some questions from the listeners we'd like to ask you. You know, they kind of, you know, patrons and stuff like that. So our first one is, how do you feel about warping of deck building and larger metagaming uh, for things like Murktide Delver relative to its power level? So I guess kind of what they're asking here is, how do you feel about, like, really hedging towards Murktide and being prepared for that sort of deck? Great question. In bigger events, especially IRL Legacy, there's a lot of like non-blue decks the first few rounds because due to the barrier of entry and legacy, I think a lot of people just have their one legacy deck and that's what they play. They play at every event and they try to make it the best they can. You know, that's fine. Obviously for someone like you, it's easier for you to switch decks. You have networking, you know? So I think in terms of the bigger the event gets and the more people that enter, I would try to stay away from like over inbreeding your deck just for that one matchup even though obviously like once you get to like five and oh like you can expect to play a lot of those mirrors a, a really good example of that is i think it's okay to play like the first pyroblast and in your de- in your main deck going to the second or third or fourth can be a little bit of overkill but i i think maybe even like the second is okay but then once you go to three or four and then you have the intention of boring up to like five blasts you run into a problem where your sideboard is not good for matchups you don't expect because you don't you just don't have like cards that have coverage in those matchups. Like what once you go that route and you have a very narrow sideboard just based on beating the like three most common decks, you run into issues where you play against like a Knight of the Row Aquarii non non-depths deck and they just play like a turn two knight and it's like a six six and you're like, well. I don't have any submerges. I don't have like any brazen borrowers. I'm kind of just sunk because I can't remove this thing and I'm going to get killed by it. So I, I think it's a great question. I would try to stay away from it if possible. I, I think playing one or two power blasts is fine. And I think that's probably what that person is asking indirectly. Yeah. And that's kind of how I, I got to read on it as well. Our next question is how do you feel about experimenting with stuff like? A Mishra's Bobble alongside Expressive Iteration to sort of get the free hits, as they want to put it, uh, off Expressive Iteration in Legacy, especially, I'd imagine, alongside cards like Ledger Shredder. Great question. I don't think this just applies only to Legacy. I think, just in general, for all formats, I like to see coherent decks. So, like, in Modern, this the Shredder Bobble thing, Iteration thing, has been, like, kind of done, you know, to Oblivion. But it's kind of interesting to see that even in that format, they don't usually play for Ledger Shredder in the Izzet deck. So in terms of that, you do see cards more often in Legacy. That's just like a matter of fact once you play a blue deck because Ponder and Brainstorm what you see an enormous amount of cards. So if you want to do something like that, I'm all for it. Just keep in mind that Mistress... I, I think Mistress Bob was an extremely powerful card. There are things that make it less desirable in Legacy in comparison. People play Hole Breacher sometimes. People play Narset. It's especially bad to top deck versus like Thalia, Guardian, Thraven. So there's a lot of reasons that you don't see necessarily four bobble decks a lot of the time. And also just in general, I think this is an underexpressed idea in modern as well. If you open a hand with Mistress Bobble, you don't know what's going to become. So it actually makes mulligan more difficult. So just keeping that in mind, you're going to have more variance in your games when you play play with Mistress Bobble, even though I do think the card obviously is powerful and does a lot of things like 
especially in modern, it enables traverse even more than holy heat, which I think are fantastic cards. But in Legacy, it also does, you know, it fills up your graveyard from Murktide along with DRC, but it also has like drawbacks that are kind of unique to Legacy as well. Okay, awesome. Thank you for answering that. Uh, we have another question of, is there anything that has a consistently favorable blue-red Murktide matchup? And if so, why isn't it so popular if it's not something we've already talked about today on the show? Uh, is there like some deck we didn't mention? Is there any deck we already kind of talked about that is uh, really good against Murktide? And if you're looking to you know be the person who goes against the grain, as you were, what would you be looking at for that? Again, great question. I will give some decks as suggestions, based on certain showcase results, but keep in mind that these are sort of the hardcore players. I believe Moon, the, like the Moon Prison deck, actually did do well versus Is it? And I find that kind of interesting because when I played the other side, I also I actually felt like it was pretty good for Is it. So I don't know what's going on there. I have a suspicion that what's actually going on in this mat in that matchup is uh, in the post war games the Is it player is not mowing enough. Because I refuse to keep a hand without a force in that matchup because you will get killed immediately. So I think that's probably what's happening. In addition, if you retool your is it sideboard to play Rough Tumble instead of End the Festivities, it actually gets a lot better for you because if you actually look at the Red Stompy deck, the majority of their creatures and threats are X2s instead of, you know, the reason to play End the Festivities is for like death and taxes. And then like, I kind of had this discussion with someone before I actually found it useful to be able to kill their Stoneforge Mystic with Rough Tumble as well. The flip side is you don't get to clear out Flicker Wisp. So there, there are drawbacks to both of the sweepers that are played in Izzet. So I actually do think Moon Prison, based on data, is probably ahead. And I also think Reanimator is actually probably ahead. But that is with the caveat that you actually know how to play your Reanimator deck and sideboard with it to not ruin it. And also Mulligan appropriately. So I think those are actually two decks. But also probably from the Izzet side, if you know you're playing against one of these decks, just, just Mulligan. Look for that Force. Look for that Graveyard Hate card. It, the, the London Mulligan is so powerful that I, like, not keeping a hand with, like, one of your seven to eight disruptive elements is kind of unacceptable, I think, in a post-board game. Awesome. I have a question for you about mulliganing uh, down against Blood Moon. Are you willing to go to, like, four in order to find a Force of Will? Like, you just won't keep a five that's, like, you know like expressive delverance so obviously like you don't know it but like in theory right. like you know in the dark would you be like yeah go to four if if it's game one mm -hmm. it also depends if i'm on the player draw because i think on the play once you're at like five cards with like a fetch and a blue cantrip and another blue card you probably should just keep and just look for that force off of the ponder instead of trying to mulligan more for it but if you're in the draw i mean the the problem is once you're at five cards we've alluded to this already the moon stompy deck the cards are a lot better now so you're probably going to just have to answer a lot of them instead of just one so mulliganing that will might just be a death knell period so you probably should just keep on five and just like hope you don't get chaliced or whatever and mm -hmm. just kind of roll the dice because at that point like what the calculation you should actually be doing is what's the probability i win on this five card hand versus like one lock piece versus probably I win on a four-card hand versus the one-walk piece I think they have. I think almost certainly the four-card hand is going to have a lower probability by that point by a significant portion. Awesome. All right, this next question is, Jarvis, what's your favorite matchup to play in Legacy when it comes from enjoyment? <laughs> That's kind of a complicated question. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't... Well, so the most enjoyment I derive from playing Magic is generally not actually legacy nowadays, I hate to admit. It's probably booster draft. Abe knows. Shout out to the drafters in the Maryland area. But I would say previously, before like the wash of MH2, it probably was like lands, mirrors, because what actually happened was whoever had better strategic vision almost always won them. And the strategic vision that used to be the case was you had to figure out how to bajuka bog their bajuka bog because you could always waste your own bajuka bog to keep bogging their wombs. So that was checkmate. And you also had to make sure you weren't killed by like a wage or, you know, something else along the way. So that was probably one of my favorite mirrors. Also shout out to, um, Esper Stoneblade Mirrors in 2013, but that's a long time ago, and probably people don't even remember what that deck looks like by this point. By this point. Is that the old intuition for Lingering Souls? I cut intuition because it was horrible. But, but that's it, a it lot was of that time. Right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> you could do that. I cut them. I What did I even play? I probably just played more one-mana spells, and I'm just like, one-mana spells are broken, and one-mana spells are still broken. Yeah, at the time that was really revolutionary. That is well, crazy to think that like ten years ago that was revolutionary, and like it's just a true statement. Last one is how do how do I get into legacy? You know, like we have some listeners who want right. to play legacy. There are people who want to play. How would you suggest someone gets into the format? It's a complicated question because there are two obvious like self questions within that, which is a how do I afford to play legacy, which is quite a uh, trek to take part in and the answer for that i think is to just hope or try to network with people who can loan you cards to try deck out or i think uh with the advent of mtgo and the rental services it actually makes a lot of sense to try to try it there first before you go out and like spend like two thousand dollars on a deck the follow-up question obviously is how do i actually start playing legacy at a reasonable level which is a completely different question and I would say that probably what you want to do, it, and I think it, this is probably the best way to start in general for most people, if you have no specific deck preference, is start with Is It Delver? Because I think it has a lot of skills that are transferable from other formats going directly into it. And also, it's kind of the deck that has a, a relatively high floor in terms of playing, but also an extremely high ceiling once you understand how to use all of the blue cantrips and days and wasteland appropriately. So I think that's probably a good starting point. I will push back on the idea that is it Murktide and is it Delver are the same deck. They have extremely different play styles and you can just tell that by looking at their mana curves. Basically the is it Murktide deck in modern has a bunch of two and three mana spells and tries to get like four to five lands into play every game. Whereas is it Murktide or like is it Delver in legacy or whatever version you want to play, can definitely operate on two lands. That has a lot to do with how good the interaction is for zero mana. Like, days, uh, you know, sometimes people talk about banning days. I think that's sort of ludicrous, but that that's unrelated. Force of Will, obviously, you know, kind of a good check on the format. If, if days and force didn't exist, I do think, like, no one would actually want to play Legacy because it would actually be kind of horrible, I think. Awesome. I, I agree with that, by the way. That, that's a conversation for a different day, I think, on if days should go. But I think that if, you know, 
if days is going, it's because we have days 2.0 or something. I don't know. We, we need something like that. We need we need new days. Jarvis, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to have you on talk about Legacy. This is your moment. Shout-outs for anything content-wise, anything like that, so people can find you. I like to teach people about magic, uh, so you can check out my Medify page, medify.com slash at JarvisU. Uh, I, I do s- stream on Twitch pretty regularly, usually starting around 5 p.m. Eastern, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, sometimes Fridays. It's usually every other Friday because that's my day off. Um, you can find me on Twitter, JKYU06. I actually do have a Patreon with now something I need to update, but it, it was like a th- it, it is a 32 page lands guide that talks a lot about the deck. It's $15, but I do think it's, you know, if you want to play lands and legacy, that's a very fringe deck. Not that much good content on it. If you want to really learn about it, that's, that's I think, one of the better sources. Obviously, I would think that because I wrote it, but I also spent a lot of time thinking about how I wanted to write it, you know? Yeah, no, of course. That's awesome. I did not know that there was such a detailed lands guide out there. I remember when I first started playing, there was, like, talks about Doomsday, like, you know, 100-page articles on how, you know, you set it all up. So it's cool to see there's stuff like that still out there, even if it's, uh, you know, not as biblical as the maybe the Doomsday articles were back in the day. Jarvis, it was great to have you. If you're a listener and you like listening to Jarvis, you should definitely check him out on Coaching. Jarvis is really smart. He's great. It's awesome to have him come on the show and talk about this. And uh, we can't wait to see you at an event soon, buddy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dreamhack Atlanta. I'll be there. Abe's still trying. You know, I believe <laughs> in you, Abe. We're on our way. No, look. So, I, slight digression. Abe had probably one of the toughest pairings last Saturday. And he just steamrolled his point. He beat Ari Lax round one. Great match. I mean, I left in the middle of it to go get lunch because I was just there to bring cards for people. But, mm-hmm. you know. Then Ari lost his winning in round seven, so... Oof. It is not easy playing DMV Magic. I've been saying this behind yeah. behind closed doors, but on the past, I'm going to say, it is a rough region around here. Jerry Jerry won one around here, and he just shows up to bird and bring people cards. Like, Ari showed up, I didn't even realize he was going to be there. It's it's really fun. It's a good region to be in, but it, it is hard. It is hard. People like Jarvis play every tournament that they can. Mm. So... Yeah. But I'll be a shout out to the DMV region. The NRG uh, RCQ, the one they ran on Sunday, had two DMV people in the finals. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> listener to the show and friend of our Sky won it. Let's go, Sky. But, you know, it does show you wherever, wherever they go, that's where the competition goes. That's why Atlanta's going to be so hot. There's going to be so many of them down there. But uh, jokes aside, it was great once again to have you on, Jarvis. And it's time for us to go to the wrap up portion of the show. Yep. Thanks. So now it is time for the Patreon question portion of the show. This is typically where we would answer patron questions, but we worked smarter, not harder this week, and we had Jarvis do all that for us just a second ago. So that is one of the benefits of joining the show on Patreon. You get to ask questions to people like Jarvis. You can hit us up next week. We always are answering questions, you know, from silly stuff like what's our intro music to more serious topics. But we also have another way for you to ask a question. Maybe, you know, you can't support the show totally reasonable show always be free but you can go to youtube and leave a comment or a question on the last video and get read here and i had this one dm to me earlier today we didn't have a comment this last week and i thought it might be kind of good to bring up on the show and basically the crux of the message is someone said hey i've really been struggling with tilting it's something i'm having a hard time with do you have any advice and i'll sort of start here and i'll just say that the thing i always tell people about tilting is that you know 
tilting happens for various reasons, right? Sometimes you're embarrassed because you made a mistake, right? Sometimes you're mad because you made a mistake, and now you're going to not do so well in the tournament, right? Just a lot of variables from there goes on. And the thing I always tell people is you have about 45 minutes probably left to play your round, then you have about eight hours left in your day to play the tournament, and then you have the rest of your life to hate yourself, you know, and be mad about those mistakes. So if you really want to do well at the tournament, we eventually need to get to the point where we're not beating ourselves up too, too much about mistakes. Everyone does it. Everyone gets mad at ourselves. But you need to be able to push that aside and finish the tournament because what is more embarrassing or what is stupider? If those are the kind of things you're thinking, right? Like, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, this is so embarrassing. Is it more embarrassing to make a mistake and have it lead to another mistake and do poorly in the tournament? Or is it more embarrassing to make the mistake, own it, and then move on and do the best you can from there? And same for looking dumb, right? What looks dumber? I made a mistake and I made another mistake and lost? Or... I made a mistake, played really well from there, and then lost, right? That's kind of where I land on it. And there's a lot of stuff we can talk around there. And there are definitely episodes of CC in the backlog that have talked about uh, tilting and stuff. But for, like, the kind of the quick sell, that is sort of how I think about it. It's just kind of got to push it aside and move out, you know? And sometimes that means taking some time from the hall, listening to music, going to the bathroom, getting water. But take some you time and just sort of calm down, push it aside, you have the rest of your life to hate yourself for those mistakes. So I used to have a big tilt problem that I didn't even realize where um, my tilt wasn't like something where I would get, you know, outwardly upset or, um, you know, I would, you know, be mad at like variants or things like that. But I found that regardless of the reason that I was no longer in contention for winning a tournament, the second that I was no longer in contention to win, no matter the prizes on the line, for a long time, I would just, like, check out and disengage for the rest of my matches. And it wasn't until a really good friend of mine and a really big mentor of mine, uh, my friend Danny, was watching me at, like, a cons PTQ, a concealed PTQ, where I, like, lost my second round, thought my deck was really good. It was, like, round four of this, like, eight-round PTQ, where he was like, hey dummy you have four more rounds to play there's still like multiple hundreds of dollars on the line if you're able to win these next four you think your deck is good and you're good enough to win just go out there and win and be mad about it after and that absolutely changed the trajectory of where i was going as like someone who was good in my area to someone who was able to compete on much larger um circuits and much larger stages there are tournaments where some of my my absolute favorite finishes that I can remember are ones where I started 03 at opens and squeaked into day two and then cashed in like 20 something place where I know that, you know, 99 other Magic players out of 100 would have just fallen apart after going 03. I mean, like, I don't want to play my deck anymore. I don't want to be, be in this tournament anymore. I'm over it. But because I was able to persevere at that time, I, you know, came back with a strong cash finish and um, being able to do things like that and having that resilience to, you know, the randomness and the, uh, you know, the unfortunate things that can happen to you in games of magic, you know, you need that to compete on the long term. And, you know, in, in 2020 before, um, before COVID, because of my run in 2019, where I was top 32 on the Star City leaderboard and points for the player year race, I had no open top eights. You know, I was stringing together those good finishes in classics, 
in in the main events, doing everything I could. And at no point was I ever letting myself get discouraged with myself or tilting off about the fact that things weren't breaking my way. You know, you just have to keep playing the tournament and trying to win. You only get that opportunity. Like Mason said, you only get those 45 minutes, that eight hours in that day to do well in that tournament. And you can tilt off about it whenever after that, but it doesn't do anything productive for you to let your emotions take control of the skills that you have put time into honing of how you play magic. And so finding good ways to allow yourself to take a deep breath, reset yourself. That is, that is really important. Find a routine that allows you to remain in control of your decisions and your game actions. And I think that that's, you know, how I would say to manage tilt, because it, it really is the least productive thing you can do for yourself is allow yourself to crash and burn because you've gone from, you know, 5-0 to like mulliganing the five twice over like two matches and losing some game three is like falling apart like that loses sight of the rest of the tournament and what you can still achieve. So, mm-hmm. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Hopefully that was helpful for you, listener. If you want to check us out, there are plenty of other shows on the network you can check out. There's Common Knowledge, which is a popper podcast, and there's Drafting Archetypes, which is a limited podcast hosted by Sam Black. So you want to make sure to check out both of those shows. And hey, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? They can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, you can DM me over there for coaching on any magic format that you like. Maybe not Legacy. If it's Legacy, you should probably hit up Jarvis. But uh, Pioneer, Limited, uh, Tiny modern, Leaders. Uh, t- yeah, Tiny Leaders. E- CDH. Uh, cube Draft. I love Cube Draft. Um, <laughs> yeah, anything anything that you can play a, an RCQ of or a tournament of. Um, or anything Magic Fundamental-wise. I would love to help. So, How about you, Mason? Yeah, they can find me uh, at Mason E. Clark on Twitter. You can find me each week on Card Kingdom writing articles for them. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Clark. You can find me here every week. And, of course, you can reach out to me via DMs or email, which is on my Twitter bio, uh, about coaching. I have about one or two slots, I would say, that are pretty open in the week I can slot people into. So if that's something you're looking to do, then you might want to reach out and do that. And like Abe mentioned, if you're doing Legacy or something like that, you definitely want to check out our guest Jarvis today. All of Jarvis's stuff is in the description. He mentioned it earlier, but I don't want to repeat it and say it wrong because I don't know off the top of my head. But if you were interested in that, Jarvis is very smart. You know, we did not mention it, but Jar- like when Jarvis like came into the show, but Jarvis has played a bunch of pro tours, tested with some of the best players in the game, has been on a bunch of pro testing teams. He's very, very smart and very, very good, and he will d- work really hard to make sure that you're getting your money worth. So, if that's something that's interesting, you, you might want to check out Jarvis over there on Medify as well. And that will do it for this week's episode of CCMTG. Next week's a big one. We'll see you then.